Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. This is Brian Lear's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, February 3rd. I'm Bridget Bergen, senior reporter in the WNYC and Gothamist newsroom, filling in for Brian, who's off today. It's been a week since the release of that graphic and disturbing footage of Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old black father, brother, and son was beaten to death at the hands of Memphis police officers who were also black. Five officers have been fired and face a series of charges, including second-degree murder. On Wednesday, three weeks after his death, the family of Tyree Nichols gathered to mourn. Aaron Morrison of the Associated Press wrote, The funeral on Wednesday had all the hallmarks of what's known as a homegoing service in Black American communities, comforting gospel hymns, remembrances from loved ones, and a stirring eulogy from a clergyman. But in addition to the offering of an outlet for private mourning of Nichols' family and friends, this ritual was also public and political. That from Aaron Morrison. A delegation from the White House was there, led by Vice President Kamala Harris. She spoke from the pulpit and praised Nichols' parents, Rodney and Ravon Wells, for their strength. Here's about a minute of her talking about this loss, especially for his family. Mothers around the world... When their babies are born, pray to God. When they hold that child, that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. Yet we have a mother and a father who mourn the life of a young man who should be here today. They have a grandson who now does not have a father. His brothers and sister will lose the love of growing old with their baby brother. And when we look at this situation, this is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. Several members of Nichols' family also spoke. His big sister talked about taking care of him as a little kid, how he was happy with a bowl of cereal and cartoons. When his mother, Ravon Wells, spoke, her pain was palpable. First of all, I want to thank each and every one of you for coming out to pay tribute to my son. Tyree was a beautiful person. And for this to happen to him, it's just unimaginable. I I promise you the only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment from God. Yes, 
And I guess now his assignment is done. And he's been taken home. All of the ceremony was televised, with cameras and microphones capturing each moment. My first guest, Charles Blow, New York Times columnist, wrote this week about how this case and the many that preceded it distort the grieving process for these families. Privacy is unavailable to them, he wrote. It's among the countless injustices that this and too many other families have faced, how to grapple with staggering grief while being in the public eye, and how the discussions inevitably shift to politics and what's broken systemically, even as individuals suffer, how broken they feel individually. Charles Blow is also an MSNBC analyst and author of The Devil You Know and Fire Shot Up My Bones. Charles, welcome back to WNYC. I really appreciate you joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Charles, you attended Tyree Nichols' funeral this week. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like in that church and, and what your experience was like there? Um, absolutely. It, well, first, you know, it is not the first time I've been to one of these funerals. And so some of the things that were part of the funeral were familiar to me. Um, what we have to remember about these families in these particular kinds of cases that garner so much attention is that they become a magnet for a lot of uh, people around the families. And so the, you know, the incredible uh, kind of entourage of dignitaries was remarkable. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that you notice. The church had three sections, one down the middle, one right and left. I don't know how many rows there were, but, you know, probably a quarter of, the front sections on all in all three sections was reserved for dignitaries, like six or seven rows of wow. other pastors, activists, politicians, movie directors. You know, it, it was, you know, that is part of what ends up happening to these families is that their grief, their journey is no longer completely their own. They're Mm. sucked into a vortex of people saying to them, saying things to them that they need to do or should do or advising or counseling, and also them feeling that they need to do these things in order to have access to some sort of justice, to to rationalize uh, what has happened to the child, the tragedy, to make 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 them make their death count in a way mm-hmm. and so they're you know they're pr lawyers all around uh, never we're never going to go to court by the way uh there are there are you know activists and there are other ministers and there are people in the community and then there is politicians and everyone wanting them to set the tone for the grieving of the community right it, it, and it, it becomes very interesting to watch all of the pulling you can tell is happening on the family mm-hmm. and even and that shows up even in the funeral. I want to bring in one of our listeners. Let's go to Lex in the Bronx. Lex, thanks for calling. Welcome to WNYC. Uh, thank you and good morning. Good morning. I'm I'm blown away literally by how routine dealing with death particularly in our black community, but also in the American community. It's literally like murder is sport. And 
it hurts so much more this time because it's us doing it to us. It's it's black people taking the lives of black people, like literally on camera. It's like it's tailor made for a media field day, and that's exactly what we have. Mm. Um, I've lost family, uh, medical emergencies. I've lost family to gun violence. Uh, I very much believe we carry our dead with us, and the pain is definitely you know part of that. that issue of grief but um what we do with it and why we keep going through it um those are questions that we have to ask ourselves i think it's time to look in the mirror um i'm in a position where like right now um, i'm the only individual i'm born and raised in new york i'm from the bronx albert einstein hospital Mm. i'm the only individual in my family still living in america my entire nuclear family is out gone uh, they're in the islands uh, back in the Caribbean. Mm. They're in Central America. Um, I'm trying to get out, too. <laughs> My wife is in South Africa right now looking at places. The um, point I'm making is we know what time it is here. We see the effects of it. Like, I can't stick around and wait for that rain to fall on me or mine because I'm already near the edge, you know? Like... It's it's out there. It could happen today. Like, that's just what it is. So the pain and the grief is always with us. And I feel for those who are going through it with us. Lex, thank you so much for calling and for for holding. And so you could share your, your feelings with all of our listeners. Uh, Charles, I want to give you a chance to, to respond to Lex. Um, it's a fascinating... Um, uh, phenomenon that 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 uh, people are experiencing in this country, particularly black people, with this issue of police violence and police killings. Police violence and police killings are not the biggest threat to anyone's life in in America. It is more community violence. Uh, uh, it is more uh, crime on a local level that it's more of a threat to your life. But we expect criminals to be criminals. We do not expect the state to also be a threat to your life. Mm. And it is the ubiquitousness of the state that makes it more threatening to a lot of people than the criminals themselves. It, you know, you could imagine as any other person in the in America, in any city that you live in, you know, you know that your mother, or whomever, father says, you know, don't go over in that area. It's a little bit more dangerous over there. Stay in this area or play play here at this playground or go to that grocery store, and you kind of learn the topography of safety in your neighborhood in your city. There is no topography of safety when you are black in America and you're dealing with police officers because we see these police killings everywhere, right? And Mm. it doesn't matter if you're near your home, away from your home. It doesn't matter if you're in your car, you're out of your car. It doesn't matter if you're walking, if you're running. In each of those circumstances, we have seen black people killed by police. And so it becomes a ubiquitous threat for a lot of black people that community violence simply does not 
present for most, you sometimes can make a choice to go or to somewhere where you feel less safe in a community. You can sometimes register that that an area is less safe. It is different to, to know that anywhere you are, there is law enforcement and the record keeps saying to black people that you are disproportionately likely to encounter these officers in a negative way. Mm -hmm. That becomes traumatic for a lot of people. And Charles, as you have noted, you and others have noted in reflecting on Tyree Nichols' funeral, politics definitely became part of um, that event. I want to play a little bit more. This is Vice President Kamala Harris, who said this. As Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. And later in the service, Ravon Wells, uh, Tyree Nichols' mother, echoed that appeal. I just need whatever that George Floyd bill we needed passed. Yeah. yeah. We need to take some action because there should be no other child that should suffer the way my son and all the other parents here have lost their children. We need to get that bill passed. Amen. Because if we don't, that blood, the next child that dies, that blood is going to be on their hands. Yeah. 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 Charles, as you wrote, Ms. Wells has been forced to shift so quickly from her own grief to being an advocate. She and her husband, Rodney, will actually go from this week of mourning to the State of the Union next week in Washington. Do you see value in bringing the Nichols family to the State of the Union? Uh, yes, they want to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they if that is part of their journey, and they you know, and they were asking, they agreed to it. Yes, what you know, whatever the family needs and wants, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, grant them that. But you know, it there is the political side of it, and the politics of it is partly theater. Um, always, that's not a partisan thing politics is theater mm-hmm. uh and uh you know you heard there the vice president saying it's non-negotiable but actually there was negotiation <laughs> you know between the, uh tim scott and and and, and cory booker you know, and another senator uh about this bill and there are a lot of people who don't think that the, the administration weighed in heavily enough it's not that you can change any senator's vote but just pressure public sentiment uh, using the bully pulpit helps, and it also sends a signal to the people who support the action that you are actively engaged. You're not sitting silently on your hands. I mean, the administration in a lot of these cases have basically, you know, taken the position while the negotiation was happening that they were going to be a little bit more hands off, whether that be voting rights or police reform or whatever. But these things died. You know, they died, you know, almost silent death. And not that the, you know, you can't blame the administration for Republicans not voting for something. And mm-hmm. you can't blame them for Tim Scott trying to water down this 
this police reform bill to would be almost meaningless. But you know, uh, the that loud vocal uh, demand from the vice president. It would have been also nice to hear a lot of that when the bill was actually still alive and still being considered. There were reports that the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden um, yesterday and and reached some sort of legislative, you know, package agreement, again, just a proposal, as well as some ideas for community-based solutions. Um, You know, I think we can anticipate how um, some of these proposals may play out. Uh, But from your mind, how important is it that a package includes something like ending qualified immunity for police officers? Well, you know, first of all, uh, it's better to do this when you control all three branches of Congress than when you don't. Mm. So we already know that these go nowhere now, Mm. right? Uh, what, what What they are laying out is a set of principles that if they could get them passed, these are the principles on the, uh, that they would want to have enacted into the legislation. Uh, so on principle, absolutely, qualified immunity is part of it. You heard Mitch McConnell say uh, after this most recent case that, you know, he's may- maybe, I don't know how it was reported, but maybe open to some, you know, uh, being able to have litigation against departments. That's actually not helpful. If you if you can suing a department is suing the city, which is suing the taxpayers. And in Memphis, most of the taxpayers are black. So so you're going to take my money to pay for killing people who look like me. That doesn't make sense to me. You have to the individual officers, just like individual doctors or individual, you know, drivers of, you know, big rigs. If you do something that costs a lot of life, you are responsible individually. That's what makes things accountable. There was a great line that, you know, Sharpton used in the funeral, which he says, you know, if you have, you're able to be sued, you have a different conversation when you leave the house with your spouse. Right. But, like, don't go out there and be stupid and do something and lose his car, lose, make, make us lose our house. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything to do something be, be stupid and make us lose the money for the kid to go to college. It makes you change behavior because you individually become at least, uh, you know, you know, qualified immunity is about civil suits and therefore uh, comp- monetary compensation. But it also that's that's part of your livelihood, and so it changes your conversation about that. That's important to me because individual accountability is what we're talking about, not departmental responsibility. That's right. a tax taxpayers will eventually pay that money, not the person. Charles, we started this conversation reflecting on how we grieve and, and this idea that the, 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 this deeply private internal um, grappling has to go on uh, before the cameras, uh, in front of the microphones. But I'm also wondering, as someone who has had to cover this, as you've said, for over a decade, but, you know, how do you cope with covering so many of these stories? Is, is your writing a kind of meditation in some way? Maybe it is, you know, and uh, uh, I work around journalists who do uh, far more devastating coverage than me. I mean, I work at the New York Times. You have war correspondents. You know, they see more hard than you can imagine in a day, and they still file uh, their reports at the end of the day. And you have to, you talk to them, they, they talk about this idea of keeping distance as best you can. 
because you have a job to do and it's more important to record and bear witness than to succumb to your own personal emotions about it. So you, you learn, uh, you know, from other journalists how to best compartmentalize, but you are a human being and so it affects you. When, when my own son was stopped at Yale, uh, you know, the officer pulled his gun out of his holster, that officer was also black. And I had just come out of one of covering one of these other killings. And because of that, it's in my bones and my, you know, I'm, I freeze up because and I get become angry and undone because I don't want to be one of the parents that I'm writing about because I see how devastated those parents are. And I don't want to ever feel what they're feeling. Charles. Thank you so, so much for for being with us this morning, for helping um, have this conversation with our listeners and, and listening to their stories. Um, Charles Blow is New York Times, a New York Times opinion columnist, MSNBC analyst, and author of The Devil You Know and Fire Shut Up My Bones. Thank you again for joining me in WNYC. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.